Good morning. Have we been blessed with the messages here at SCYC already this year? This has been incredible, and I can see that this morning we have the remnant here today. That's great. Good to see all of you today. Before we open the Word of God, I'd like to ask that we bow our heads briefly for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are about to open your holy word. We want to hear your voice today speaking to us. May your spirit be present in this place. May we sense its calling. May we sense the urgency of the time in which we live. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. About three years ago in 2005, I was in a large lecture hall in the country of Cyprus, together with officials from most branches of the Cypriot government. Cyprus had just become a member of the European Union, and as a Fulbright scholar sponsored by the United States Department of State, I was there as a kind of academic ambassador for the United States government that particular year. I had been invited to attend this meeting not only because of my position, but because my predecessor, Dr. Richard Harrison, was presenting to those government officials his research as the Fulbright Scholar the previous year. Dr. Harrison is a member of the U.S. Geological Survey, and as he documented very carefully his research, he showed officials from that country that there was evidence that Cyprus would soon experience something that the world had experienced only a few months before. He described meticulously the history of tsunamis in the Mediterranean world, documenting the pattern over several thousand years as he looked at geology, archaeology, and historical sources to indicate that every 25 or 50 years, there had been a major earthquake in the region and a tsunami that had impacted the country. He predicted, based on the small tremors and his research in recent years, that Cyprus was overdue for another major event. In fact, the last tsunami that had hit Cyprus was a hundred years earlier, over a century earlier. And he predicted, based on his research and evidence, that the next one could be massive and that it could be one of the most devastating that the country had yet experienced. Just a few months earlier, the world had been shocked by a tsunami in Asia that had killed over 260,000 people, devastating several countries around the Pacific. What made that event a killer was that most of the people had absolutely no warning of what was coming their way. And so there we sat in that room with the press, with government officials, sitting on the edge of our chairs, waiting to hear what this meant for the place where we were sitting right then. The room was packed with people on the edge of their seats for two reasons. First, the news of that Asian tsunami. And secondly, the fact that we were sitting on an island with the major cities of that island along the coast and knowing that we were in a very precarious position. The Bible tells us that at the end of time that all history has been moving towards a crisis 
a global crisis that will leave nations impacted, that will leave governments devastated, and while some will be rescued at the end of time, many will be left behind. You and I have heard about it our entire lives. We have been steeped in the message. We have been trained to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming soon, so we have been told again and again and again. Some have been caught up with making predictions. As the year 2000 neared, there were those who said this would be it. I remember a few years ago that uh, I was sitting in my office and a man had made an appointment with me, asked to see me, and urgently during the next two hours tried to convince me that in May 2001, when the planets all line up, that that would trigger the event for Jesus' coming. It was April, and I told him to come and see me in June, and we would discuss it a little bit further. We laugh. But the fact of the matter is that many of us have been numbed by these kinds of predictions over the years. We don't know anymore exactly what to think or what to believe. We are skeptical. Some of us have been burned too many times by these kinds of events. We have become used to natural disasters. Katrina, Gustav, Ike, there will be other names, we think. Our minds have become numb to wars and rumors of wars, the vicissitudes of Wall Street, back and forth. And there comes a time when we are tempted to think, is he really coming soon? But the fact is that today, you and I live in a different world, in a different country than we lived in even 10 years ago. In the late 1980s, the fall of communism was instigated through a collaboration of President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II. But we only heard about the news of what took place behind secret doors after the Berlin Wall fell and after the events were set in motion. Today, that is no longer the case. Today, everything is out in the open. Never before have more heads of states gathered for a funeral of a pontiff than just happened a few years ago. We watched spellbound on the television screens as it was broadcast live all over the world. People could see the impact. People could see the response of country after country after country. I watched Spellbound there in Cyprus with the rest of the world as three American presidents kneeled, Protestant presidents kneeled before the casket. What is going on? Doesn't Revelation 13.3 have something to say about this? Never before has a seated president of the United States greeted a dignitary at Andrews Air Force Base. They have always come first to the White House to meet the president of this world's superpower. But not this year. A few months ago, for the first time, a president of the United States went to Andrews Air Force Base to meet a visiting dignitary who arrived there that particular day. Never before has the Pope been received with such pomp and circumstance as visitors lined the White House lawn The headlines proclaimed that not even Queen Elizabeth, when she arrived from England, 
had received such a lavish reception. The deadly wound, friends, is being healed before our very eyes, and it is happening today. Never before has a Sunday law been possible by a majority vote of the Supreme Court. Today, there are five justices of the Supreme Court that are Catholic, and it just takes one vote for a majority to make the difference in legislation. Former President Al Gore knew exactly the power of that one vote just a few years ago. Could it be that we are living in the last generation? No one who reads the headlines today can escape the fact that we are living in a changing world, that events are taking place that have not taken place before. We do not know the day or the hour, and the Bible and the spirit of prophecy warns us specifically not to be about setting times and setting dates. And I'm not here to talk to you about that today. I'm simply asking you the question today, the question that has been on my mind in recent days, are we ready for Jesus to come? Are we living as if Jesus is coming soon? I'd like to invite us to open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. And I hope you brought your Bibles today because as we discuss these events in history, as we discuss these events that are taking place today, we want to know what the Word of God instructs us today, don't we? The living Word of God that changes lives and is the blueprint for the life to come. Let us turn to Revelation. The first two and three chapters of Revelation lay out the scope in historical sequence of the history of the Christian church. From its beginnings in Ephesus, representing the church right after the time of Christ to the very end of time. And in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, we read that the last church, the last church of Revelation, the last church in earth's history is a church by the name of Laodicea. The last generation church is Laodicea extending until the coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no other church between now and when Jesus comes. Listen to what the angel says to the church of Laodicea. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. What else does it say? The beginning of the creation of God. These three titles describe the sender of the message. Jesus Christ is described as the true and faithful witness. He is described as the amen. In a world today where truth is something that no one knows about anymore or no one wants to claim, in a world where truth with a capital T has been relativized and cast aside, in a day today when we live where, where everything is relative and your opinion is as good as my opinion and his opinion is as good as that opinion and tolerance is the key word and political correctness is what is being taught 
all around in our culture today. We are told that the last day church and the last day king of that church is the faithful and true witness. And as you look through the titles that are used for Jesus, as we go through these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we find something else intriguing. Each of the titles describes the kind of Jesus or the titles of Jesus that fit the events that are taking place with that church. Why is the true witness being emphasized in the postmodern world in which we live? Why is the beginning of the creation of God emphasized in this passage to Laodicea? Because today there is a conflict about creation and evolution as has never raged before in this world. And this church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is one of the only denominations left that is still proclaiming that Jesus God is creator, that he created all things. In fact, the first angel's message begins, worship God who made heavens and earth and the seas and all that is in them. That is part of the message that you and I are to preach today. It is that same God who rested on the seventh day and it is for that reason that we are worshiping here this morning. He is the true and faithful witness. He is the one who was the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. This past summer, well, before we go there, I want to just read the last part of this. I know your deeds, that you are neither what? Hot or cold. I would that you were cold or hot. This summer I had the privilege to visit the city of Laodicea. I'm not talking about one of your churches. I'm talking about I got on a plane and I flew across the Atlantic Ocean and I visited the city of Laodicea and every other of the seven churches. We started out in Patmos. Mark Finley and I were leading the tour and there we were in Patmos where John received this revelation from the angel, and he was told to write to those literal seven churches that were established in those literal cities. And friends, as you walk through those cities today, it is an amazing thing. Would you like to do that sometime? Walk through the cities of Laodicea and Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. Well, next summer you have the opportunity. June 1 to 15, just a little advertisement here. June 1 to 15, we're going, we're taking students from Southern Adventist University and we're going to visit the seven churches. If you're interested, you can sign up afterwards behind there. At any rate, there I was. I have that privilege as an archaeologist to visit these ancient places and there we were walking through the streets of Laodicea. Now you have to understand that Laodicea is situated in a fertile valley. It's a huge city of about 150,000 inhabitants, at least it was at that time. And its water source came from two specific locations. From the mountains on the east came the cold, fresh water piped down through Roman aqueducts. And then from the west, from the city of Hierapolis, located on the hills opposite. And here you can see this beautiful city of Hierapolis uh, up above. Most of it is in ruins now. And you can see the cascading waters of thermal baths and the calcification that has taken place on these snow-capped, or I should say, 
calcified uh, deposits that uh, describe this, this particular mountainside cascading down from Hierapolis. People from all over the, the Asia, all over the world, came to this place for healing in the hot thermal baths and for, for, for just being there and relaxing. The wealthy and the wretched and the sick all came to Hierapolis. And it was here, from here that water was piped all the way down to Laodicea, located in the valley down below. And guess what it tasted like when it arrived there, these hot thermal waters? It was lukewarm. Have you ever tasted lukewarm water on a hot day? A few years ago, I was in the Sinai Peninsula, and I'd left my water bottle by accident in the trunk of the car. The Sinai is desolate, desert, and there we were. I got it out, and I took a swig. It was hot enough to make instant Quaker oatmeal. I've tasted lukewarm water all the days that I've worked on digs because, you know, you just can't take ice out there with you. It doesn't last very long. Lukewarm water is yuck. That's why Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm water simply is horrible. It doesn't work. Sorry, I had a little problem there. It doesn't quench the thirst the way it should. But here, that's what the Laodiceans received. But that's not all that Jesus says. He doesn't just say, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says something else. You can see the calcifications in the mineral uh, deposits in the pipes that are still there from 2,000 years ago that the Romans built. Let me tell you something. If you are not active and you are not working to do what God has called you to do, if you're just coming to church every day and sitting in the pew and leaving without doing anything during the week to spread what God has given you that Sabbath or during that week, then you will become calcified and lukewarm. That's why the message comes to the church today calcification in the middle of these pipes. Jesus says, because you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, and I have need of nothing. You see, Laodicea was characterized by three major elements in ancient times. It was known by the people around them from three major elements. First of all, it was known as a major banking and commercial center. It had enormous wealth. And when an earthquake struck in A.D. 60, unlike the inhabitants of New Orleans and the southern coast when Katrina hit, they did not beg for help from the federal government. They refused help from FEMA. They said, we are wealthy, we can do it on our own, we will rebuild on ourselves. We don't need anything from Rome, even though it was offered to them. Laodicea is known for its self-sufficiency. Secondly, Laodicea was known also because of its impact in the fashion industry. No, these sheep were not uh, models, you understand? 
They were the sources for the wool. Laodicea was known for its black wool, the finest black wool anywhere in the Roman Empire. The finest garments were made, and its fashion impacted the entire Roman world. And finally, it was an intellectual center, a center with a major medical university and a major hospital that specialized in an eye ointment that could heal the most terrible diseases of the eye. So this was a sophisticated, a wealthy, an educated city, a culture steeped in materialism, steeped in self-importance, steeped in self-reliance. How apt this description is for the culture we live in today. We know what we like. We have our dreams. And when we get that college degree, when we get that law degree, when we get that medical degree, when we get out there in the real world and make it big, we know what we want. We know what car we want to drive. We're going to trade in finally that 15-year-old Mazda or that 13-year-old Ford. We have standards, you see. We have goals. Everyone wants to capture the American dream. We admire design, and our society is driven by the latest fashion. It's driven by what we see externally. We have become a society obsessed with having, with consuming, even though we do not have anything any longer to consume with. I mean, after all, we live in the generation of the latest iPod and the latest iPhone, but in this obsession with I and me, there remains an essential question. What does this have to do with being part of a remnant church called at the end of time? in this frenzied drive to buying ourselves into enormous debt, and we are paying for that enormous debt right now. What does it mean to be living in the last days? Do we really believe that Jesus is coming soon? Jesus says about Laodicea, and he says about you and me, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why? Because we are so obsessed with ourselves that we do not perceive reality the way Jesus perceives it. The disciples didn't perceive reality either the way Jesus perceived it. They were as shocked as everyone else when he was there nailed on the cross because he was not fulfilling what they thought was going to happen, a kingdom here on this earth. And while we are text messaging and blackberrying our way through life, Jesus has a bigger message. He says, I advise you to buy from me. 
not at the local Best Buy or the Walmart. I advise you to buy from me. Gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may what? See. Notice he addresses the very priorities that Laodicea had and that Laodicea has today. Gold, clothing, and I self. Jesus is saying that none of these things will last when I come again. Materialism only inspires a lukewarm attitude towards a dying world. It exposes the shame of our nakedness. Jesus wants us to ask him for the real things in life so that we can truly see what is happening around the world. How does this culture's norms fit with the reality of the world around us? If you travel a little bit around the world like I do, you realize that most of the world does not live in an economic superpower. Most of the world is just simply trying to eke out an existence and survive. Most of the world is in ruins like Laodicea is today. And as I travel around the world and particularly around this country, I ask myself sometimes, I sense sometimes, and I wonder, do we really know what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist today? Do we understand that we are facing a major identity crisis? Sometimes I wonder if we have delegated Adventism to one belief instead of 28? That if we just come and worship on Sabbath morning instead of Sunday, that makes us a Seventh-day Adventist. But we learned last night that God desires more than that. He desires us to rest with him, not only on Sabbath, but every day of the week and every week of the month and every month of the year and every year until Jesus comes again. You see, we seem to have it backwards. In our worship, even on the seventh day, we increasingly play the same music for church that the world plays during the week. We shop around to find the worship style that best suits us. Do we ever ask, what does God require for us, from us, to truly enter into his rest? I mean, think about it. If we create worship after our image and after the norms of our culture, are we not simply worshiping ourselves? And we go out in droves. Adventists go out in droves to the megachurches in California and Chicago. 
We buy their books to see what it is that are making them grow when we are not. We bring in experts from other denominations to tell us how best to do evangelism. And we wonder why our church in North America is not growing because we no longer believe or no longer know what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist with an end-time message. Has the end-time remnant church not been called forth to proclaim a third angel's message to bring people out of Babylon? A few years ago, there was a guest speaker here on this campus, Dr. Calvin Miller, famous writer and preacher in the Baptist church, was invited to speak for the Staley Lectureship Series here. And uh, several of us were having lunch with him in the presidential banquet room right across the street here at Southern Adventist University. And I never remember he asked a particular question that afternoon over lunch. I was sitting right next to him. He said, how is it that Adventism and the Adventist church is growing by leaps and bounds around the world? And one of the people that was sitting there said, because we believe that Jesus is coming soon. Do we really believe that Jesus is coming soon? I mean, when I travel to South America and inter-America, when I travel to Africa and to Asia, the church is booming, it's alive, it's moving. In Brazil, I'm in Brazil frequently. My wife is Brazilian. In Brazil, there are 80,000 pathfinders in the city of Sao Paulo alone. We have here the Kentucky-Tennessee Conference, and we have the Iowa-Missouri Conference, and we have the Gulf States Conference. But in Brazil, there are three conferences in the city of Sao Paulo alone. There are more Seventh-day Adventists in that country than any other single country in the world. 1.5 million. The educational system is the largest, second to Catholics, in that country. And their academies are the size of 90% of our universities and colleges here in North America. The message went out from here, but today only 8% of the Seventh-day Adventist church is found in North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. 8%. And that percentage is falling as the years go by. Do we really believe that Jesus is coming soon here? So many times we hear sermons Sabbath morning that are virtually indistinguishable from a sermon that could be heard at any church in the surrounding area. Are we that tired of being different, of being a peculiar people called to preach a message with the trumpet having a certain sound? What about Jesus? Was he accepted This Jesus who was ridiculed and scorned, this Jesus who was killed to fulfill his mission, says to you and to me today, buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To see what? 
Could it be that he wants us to see the world from his eyes? We sit here in Happy Valley, and we are, for the most part, happy, while the world around us is in a frenzy trying to figure out the meaning to life and is trying to find answers that, ironically, we have been called to give. We comfort ourselves that we know the truth. And we tell ourselves that we have heard this message over and over and over again so that we can regurgitate it in our sleep if we need to. My daughter right now here at Spalding is learning the fourth commandment. They learn a verse, memorize it every single week. And this week, she came home with the fourth commandment, the whole thing. And I thought to myself, wow, uh, one week. It's the largest commandment, you understand. It's not quite as simple as thou shalt not steal. But she worked on it. There's a professor here at Southern Adventist University that polls his students in a general education religion class every single semester. And last year, those classes, only 26 to 29% of those students could name all 10 commandments. But we have the truth. Only 10% of them could name them in order. I'm not talking about memorized. I'm talking about naming them in order. We were once known as the people of the book. But today, the question in postmodern Adventism and in the world around us is, what book? Whose book? Subject of my message this afternoon in the seminars is, is the Bible relevant and real? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy today? And we ask that question, but unless you and I are reading it, unless you and I are steeped in it, what difference does it make? What does it matter? Do we really believe that Jesus is coming soon? What does Jesus want us to see? What does he want us to hear? The message to Laodicea ends in verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine and, and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And I don't know about you today, but I want to sit there with Jesus on his throne. I want to be there. Do we hear his still, small voice calling us in the noise around us? in the busyness of life. And if we cannot hear him, and if we are not seeking him with all our hearts, how will he, we know that he is there? 
How will we find him? How will we hear him? As we sat there in that conference room in Cyprus with the press and government officials sitting on the edge of their seats listening to Dr. Harrison, the question that we had on our mind was one question. What would we do if there was a major tsunami heading our way? Escape routes were discussed. Evacuation plans were formulated. And then at the end, Dr. Harrison simply said this. Just tell your people that if they're sitting on the beach, and remember Cyprus is an island surrounded by beaches with tourists coming from all over the world to this Mediterranean paradise, if people are sitting on the beach and they see the water coming, but even before they see the water coming, if they see the water going out, don't sit there and stare wondering what is happening. Turn around and run. Run for high ground and tell as many people on the way to run for their lives as well. My friends, the angels of the heavenly host are holding back the four winds. They are holding it back, that wall of devastation that is soon to come back with fury. They're holding it back so that you and I can run and warn people that Jesus is coming soon. It is so that the message of warning is to be sent out to an oblivious population that has no clue of what is about to take place. Jesus is knocking at the door. And as with Isaiah long ago, God's voice echoes through the universe and down through time, asking the question, whom shall we send and who shall go for us? That word, to send in Hebrew is not simply the word to send. It means to stretch out. Who will go for us? Who will be stretched out? Are you ready to be stretched out today? Isaiah certainly didn't have it easy. He was ridiculed and scorned. Daniel, all the men and women of old, who stood out to be counted and were stretched. Are you ready to be stretched today? You see, God today is looking for a last generation, a generation that will follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even if that means rejection and criticism, even if it means it's not going to be popular, because you see, truth is not about a popularity contest. Truth is not decided in a committee. It is not subject to a vote. Truth, as it is found in Scripture, is to be proclaimed in its fullness, in the fullness of time. And when Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life, all who come to the Father must come through me, he was speaking not about a broad path, but a narrow one, a difficult one, but one that has a glorious end because we're following Jesus. 
He is looking for men and women today. Even though the masses may be gazing and even running out into the sea, God is calling a remnant people to run in the opposite direction, calling as many people to follow Jesus wherever he goes, running the race that he has set before us. He is looking for men and women today who will uphold the Bible, God's word for this last day, as the only source and standard for faith and practice. For Jesus' last words to his disciples was not only to go out and to make disciples or make disciples into all nations, kindred, tongues, and people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What else did Jesus say? Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He is calling for a people to go today. That does not mean next year. That does not mean when I graduate with my degree from Southern here or from the academy that you have come from today. That does not mean after I finish my medical degree or my law degree. That does not mean 10 years down the road when I've had my fun and I'm ready to do what God's called me to do. God is looking for a last generation. What does it mean? Don't look at your parents and say they're going to do it. Don't look at your pastor and say, well, it's his job to do it. He's the one being paid. You are the church, and you have been called to go. Everyone has been called to go. This morning, you'll find underneath your seats a card, a page, And on that card and on that page, there are a number of things, ministries, evangelistic resources that are right here in front of you, right here on this campus, available to you to get involved and be part of that last generation. Take out that sheet of paper and and listen to what God is saying to you as you answer what he is saying, what the Spirit is moving your heart to do right now. No one is asking you to drop out from school. No one is asking you to run to the hills. That time will come. But right now, God needs a generation to spread the gospel message to this world. As you train to become physicists and chemists, lawyers and business people, nurses and doctors, pastors and teachers, your task begins before you leave this place For this is the training ground for what you will do the rest of your life. It is here that a life of mission begins. Don't put it off. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. I was sitting with you as a sophomore student overseas in college when I learned that the flight I had been booked on and I had prayed about and decided not to take to fly home for Christmas had crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland in 1989. That 747 killed everyone on board as a bomb ripped through the fuselage. And it became 
a matter to me of deciding what was I here for, what was God calling me to do. Yesterday was my 40th birthday, and I know that God has given me a wonderful, wonderful grace and a message to proclaim. And I know that I'm closer today to his coming than I was when I was sitting in those chairs that you're sitting in today. Jesus is coming soon. Don't put it off. Get out of Happy Valley and go right downtown to Chattanooga. Get involved in the Patton Towers project. I would like to see so many students get involved in the Patton Towers that other towers have to be found. We would love that. You know how many towers there are? You know how many people there are here? There are as many people in Chattanooga as there are in ancient Laodicea. Between 150 and 200,000 people are here. Let's get out of Happy Valley and work and do what God has called us to do. Witness to your coworkers while you're at the mall. If you're sitting in the calf, don't just sit there idly talking about nonsense and things that don't really matter. Take the opportunity to share with someone about Jesus. And if you have a problem with dorm worships, take the initiative to do something about it. Change the worship. Get involved. We need leaders of small groups here on this campus that will begin getting people in touch with Jesus in this last generation. We will provide the materials, but we need people who will go out and do the work. And if the Spirit is calling you and saying, you know, that's just not enough. There's more that needs to be done. I don't want to just be here. I want to go out. I want to do something bigger for Christ. There may be some of you here who are thinking, I want to go abroad and dedicate a year of my life to student missions. Some of you may be saying, no, I want to get done in three years. No, I want to get done in four years. But what if it takes five years? What's the big deal? Get involved. Just think of that child in Panape that could hear for the first time about Jesus. Think about the student in Denmark that could come to the realization that Jesus is in fact coming soon. And if a year seems too long and you simply want to get your feet wet, talk to the Evangelistic Resource Center. They're going to Argentina. They're going to the Philippines. They're going to Mexico. They're going around the world. They're paying for your flight to go, but they need preachers to preach the gospel message. And you say, but I've never preached the gospel message before. Well, if Elder Falkenberg can take 11 and 12-year-olds to preach the gospel message and you are a university student, do you think you could do it too? Jesus is coming soon. Do we believe it? Let's say it together. Jesus is coming soon. And if any of you have checked that, one of those boxes on this card this morning, all of us need to be involved. I want to invite those of you who have checked that box to stand right now. I want the ushers to come down right now and pick up those cards. Pass out those, those, those buckets and pick up those cards. If you've checked one of those boxes this morning and said, I don't want to be 
simply living the life of the status quo. I want to be part of the last generation. Do you know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? I want to read to you something I just read again last night. Christ is waiting with longing desire, Ellen White writes, for the manifestation of himself in the church. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. We were all to profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. It is not a matter of saying, this is the last generation because Jesus is coming at such and such a date. It is saying, I want to be the last generation so that Jesus can come soon. Let us pray as we have made that commitment here today. O Lord God, the time has come for us to be Adventists for the last generation. O Father who is in heaven, Creator God who spoke and it was and who rested and rests with us here today, We want to answer that call. We are tired of this world. We want to go home, but there is some unfinished business and you're holding back the winds. There is that roommate right now who needs you. There is my sister. There is my father. There is my co-worker whose life is falling apart. Lord, give us your eye salve so that we may see and we may love like Jesus loved the people who are around us right now in this place, right now in our lives. May we love as Jesus loved. May we reach out to this generation so that we can see you face to face. In his precious name we pray. Amen.